and welcome back to another episode of Banter. I'm Max Frost, and here with me today is Matt Winesett. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's good. Today we are joined by a very distinguished guest, Raghuram Rajan. Uh, Dr. Rajan is a professor at the University of Chicago. He's the former IMF chief economist. He was also the head of India's central bank, and he was the author of the 2010 Financial Times and McKinsey business book of the year, Fault Lines. He joins us today to talk about his new book, The Third Pillar, How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. And without further ado, here is Dr. Raghuram Rajan. Dr. Rajan, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. So the book covers this in some depth, but to start off, could you give us a brief history of markets and their relationship with the state? This is a major point in your book. The, the book really is about why capitalism worked and how all three pillars, that is the state, markets, and the community, were essential to make it work. It was not just markets themselves, uh, but the state, both in providing security for property rights to enforce contracts, that's what we usually think the state does, but also in uh, providing people pre-market support, that is uh, schooling, for example, to enable them to participate in markets, but also protection against the extreme volatility that markets create, uh, safety nets if they lose, if people lose their jobs. So that's what the state did. And what the community did was essentially pick up the pieces when neither the state nor markets worked. Because communities are based on relationships, they essentially help support people when they don't have any formal contracts necessitating that support. So for example, in Southern Europe, when you had the Great Recession, people just went back to their villages and stayed with their parents simply when, uh, you know, their unemployment insurance ran out. There's no formal obligation to provide that help, but in fact, it was provided. Right. So when would you say that, it's kind of maybe a tough question too, but that when capitalism was actually invented, because depending on who you ask, you get very different answers. Some people say, we've always had capitalism in some form. Some people point to maybe the industrial revolution, maybe earlier with certain free trade in city-states. So what would you say to when capitalism was actually invented, if it was invented at all? Uh, I would argue that two components were essential to capitalism. One, uh, you had a political entity like the state which had secure borders. And second, uh, when the power of the state was constrained, that it that kings were no longer rapacious, didn't simply confiscate uh, go, uh, property when they felt the whim. Uh, those two uh, factors helped create an environment where you were no longer scared that uh, your life and limb uh, would be under threat if you went out and did commerce. Uh, it essentially created the environment for uh, laissez-faire in a sense that uh, uh, commerce was free uh, or could be free under those circumstances, you no longer needed to create structures which protected you against the state, such as the guilds, which essentially were limitations on competition. So, yeah, so something else. So the subtitle of the book is How Markets and the State Leave the Community Behind. And how do you see the market leaving communities behind versus people failing to adapt to the market? Well, I, I think the markets constantly pressure 
the community, pressure relationships with the commu- within the community. Again, um, uh, uh, as a simple point, uh, professionalization, being able to buy goods and services from the best in the business make you less reliant on other community members. Uh, so, for instance, if, uh, if you wanted your baby delivered, uh, an example uh, that's often quoted in the book, uh, you'd go today to uh, a hospital or to some professional midwife. Uh, you wouldn't go to your a helpful neighbor uh, for those services because uh, willing as they are, they're not particularly qualified. But in frontier communities, uh, it used to be the case that uh, all the women would come together to help in the delivery of babies. They'd have some rudimentary knowledge, uh, but they would also have a lot of goodwill and this built ties. So uh, as the market develops, it certainly gives us choice, but it does also hurt uh, the kinds of uh, ties, the relationships we build within the community. So good and bad in that. Now, to the point about adaptation, uh, the market does demand more of us over time. Uh, our able ability to get jobs in the market uh, change. Uh, um, over time, the requirements that we need to get those jobs change. For example, it used to be the case to get a decent job in the 19th century, you needed really no education. Uh, as jobs in factories opened up, you needed more of an education. You ne- needed to be numerate. You sometimes needed to know trigonometry. And then in this day and age, uh, you know, a few years of high school no longer cut it. You really need uh, more than that. Often it's a a degree from a community college, sometimes uh, a degree from a full-fledged university to be able to get a decent job in the market. So technology demands more. That does require adaptation. Some of that adaptation comes from individuals. Some of it comes from their access to institutions in the community like good schools or community colleges. Yeah, there's a saying that you used to only need a strong back and a work ethic to do well in the economy. Now it feels like you need to spend tens of thousands of dollars at a college to get to even have a shot. Absolutely. But going back to the community, we so we interviewed a, a journalist named Tim Carney recently. He re, uh, came out with a book called Alienated America about his take on why communities are collapsing. And he makes a lot of the same points you do where kind of the combination of the ever-expanding state and ever-expanding markets both kind of wither away at the community. But he also identified the main, the rock of most communities was the church. And he points at kind of the secularization of America, church, a lot of churches closing as the clearest sign that communities are kind of fading away and and not thriving nearly as much as they used to. Do you see, where, where does the, the role of the church and church, local churches and communities fit into your analysis here? Well, there are a variety of structures which hold a community together, and certainly the church is one of them. Now, it's very hard to tell cause and effect here, right? Do people, does the church wither away uh, because people are becoming more secular, or is it because they have less time or less inclination to spend with each other that in fact communal gatherings like church gatherings because become less important and they practice their religion at home without uh, without going to church uh, so it's it's very hard to say what is cause and effect here but i also believe that uh, you know when these uh, traditional institutions become weaker we do in the uh, search for community 
try and invent new ones and uh, new uh, structures become the source for community gathering. For example, in, in many cities, the focal point for the community is no longer perhaps the church, but the school. That is, we come together to help our kids, but in the process, uh, get to know the parents of other kids. We have uh, um, dinners with them, call them over. That becomes the source for engagement. And school activity becomes the communal activity that perhaps earlier used to take place elsewhere. So I think we we reinvent communities over time, uh, focused perhaps on different institutions. So, yeah, well, and when you speak of strengthening local communities, of course, it's always easy for people to blame the markets, um, but you also place a lot of blame on the state. So can you go into a bit uh, how you talk about in the book, how is the state leaving behind local communities? Right. Now, uh, blame is a strong word, right? Uh, I, I think in, in, in my book, there are no villains. It's more that these are the things that change. Change has good aspects and it has bad aspects. And we need to figure out how we adapt uh, in such a way that we can maximize the good and minimize the bad. Uh, as far as the state goes, uh, one of the um, historical um, sort of uh, lines that I draw is that you know, as markets became free and more volatile, there became more of a need to temper some of the effects. And, and sometimes the uh, community was too small to temper these effects. Uh, communities used to originally provide much of what we call social security as well as safety nets uh, in the past. You used to have the parish providing uh, some form of support when, uh, when a family lost its breadwinner or or uh, when there was uh, severe unemployment. But as we got nationwide calamities like the Great Depression in the 19th century, it become it became too much for one community to sort of support all those who needed help within that community. Uh, and increasingly, it became the role of the state to provide the kind of safety net, net that was needed. Similarly, as uh, you know, schools uh, grew in their needs from being the little uh, community school to becoming the uh, full-fledged high school, which required a lot of teachers, uh, all of whom had to specialize uh, fairly carefully in, in different areas, um, it required a lot more expenditure than uh, a traditional small community could afford. So communities had to come together, and eventually uh, state governments started providing support to, to high schools. So uh, all this meant that over time, more and more got taken out from the community and got taken up by the state, not necessarily because of some, some evil notion of, uh, of the state grabbing power. Sometimes it was that, but it wasn't always that. Sometimes it was simply because the community couldn't cope and couldn't do what was needed and it needed help from outside. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of books recently looking at this collapse of community and the, what caused it and the problems it's causing, uh, especially in the Rust Belt. You hear about it a lot in the American context. And a lot of people, not necessarily us, like to blame you know, so-called neoliberalism, the Washington Consensus, the, the IMF, which you were chief economist of. <laughs> right. So what do, you, what do you think when you hear people blaming the, you know, the Washington Consensus of freer trade, more open immigration, making everybody better off? 
Well, I, I, I do think that uh, if uh, you think about our problems uh, looking forward and, and, and where the solutions may lie, it would be really silly uh, at this point to create a protectionist world. Right. Uh, think about the industrial countries. They're aging. Uh, because they're aging, it creates two immediate problems. One, the workforce will shrink in the not-too-distant future. And second, demand from an aging workforce, uh, from an aging population typically falls over time. You just have to look at uh, Japan and see what the future holds for many industrial countries. Now, uh, in, in such a situation, uh, when you need, uh, over time, more people to come into the country to help bear the burden of the entitlements that we have given ourselves, as well as uh, if you need people elsewhere to buy your goods because local demand is going to be uh, inadequate in the future. When these situations prevail, then expecting uh, that uh, somehow you can erect barriers today, you can stop immigration, and then magically we'll find solutions to these in the future just seems to me not recognizing reality. So uh, in some ways, uh, you know, forget the Washington consensus. Uh, if we are to prepare for the uh, future, we do need to focus on somehow having controlled but sensible immigration, as well as having relatively open borders, because ultimately we will want to sell to the rest of the world. We can't erect borders, to, uh, erect protectionist barriers today, and hope that somehow um, after we've done all this, they will open up their economies to us in the future. So we need to work on these uh, these uh, going forward. Now that doesn't mean that. Uh, uh, you know, we, we sort of don't do anything about the communities that have been hit by trade. We need to figure out how to revive them and find new sources of work, uh, offset the social decline that is taking place in such communities. And as I argue in the book, many of the answers lie within the communities themselves. We have to make it possible, uh, facilitate the process by which they arrive at those answers. But uh, certainly adaptation, rather than somehow suppressing markets, uh, is the answer that I think we need and uh, I would like to work for. So do you see any interest from policymakers on these ideas? Because it seems now that so many people um, on both the right and the left um, have essentially said the state needs to take a bigger role and you have to put the markets, you, you know, you have to clamp down on markets to a certain extent uh, with protectionists on the right and then, you know, open socialists on the left. Do you see your ideas in the book gaining ground with politicians? Right. So, so my fear really is precisely what you say, that uh, you have uh, actually both the left and the right agree on protectionism, but you also have uh, some people advocating an immense expansion of the state, uh, while, while others, uh, of course, go beyond protectionism uh, to cutting back seriously on any kind of immigration, even, even control legitimate immigration. And, and I think all these are, are very short-term in nature and, and really don't think about the bigger picture of how societies, our societies have to evolve. Um, yes, in terms of uh, there are people trying to pay attention, uh, what you have to work against is, is a couple of things. Uh, one is the sense that all solutions have to come from the capital city. There's, everybody wants to impose their solution, but largely centralized 
you know, uh, solutions. And, and the problem here is that uh, we have very, very different problems in different parts of the country, many of which are unique to particular communities. They know what their difficulties are. They know how to resolve them. In some communities, the problem is crime. In some other communities, the problem is inadequate uh, training for uh, for uh, some of the youth. Uh, each community knows what, what needs to be done, uh, but often... Uh, Either you don't have the appropriate leadership group emerging or it doesn't have appropriate resources of powers. So rather than a centralized solution imposed from the capital city, which is our temptation, uh, we need to think about how we can uh, empower and encourage community action uh, to change. Of course, supported by state and, and, and central governments when necessary. But in some sense, we need to take away the lessons from development of countries, which uh, I think we've learned something, which is unless the push comes from within, uh, it rarely is successful. Yeah, that's one of the ironies of a lot of the books that are coming out lately. Uh, I think most especially from Senator Ben Sass, who's a senator in Washington, who's written on community matters too. But and he also agrees that a lot of the times you you got to have a sort of grassroots up approach to these issues, and you can't just solve all of them from D.C., which does seem like the challenge. But on the other hand, that also seems like I I know I think it was a review of your book in the Wall Street Journal noted that that's also one of the inefficiencies here, where the problem with local governments is they also tend to put up a lot of inefficient economic barriers, whether through zoning laws, which drive the housing market, housing prices up, or occupational licensing, which, you know, is all sorts of bad economic uh, results as well. So how do you find a balance between empowering local communities, but also not letting them do whatever they want, which might make sense for their own residents, but really has a bad effect on the rest of the national economy? Absolutely, which is why I say any new equilibrium has to be a balance between, uh, you know, community rights which uh, and, and, and powers which are important, but at the same time recognize that we have benefited from having a common market within the country, and you don't want to balkanize it all over again, and that there are some community inclinations which tend to reduce uh, integration and, and enhance segregation, if you will. The zoning laws are one example, which... Uh, have contributed significantly to economic segregation. So we we really have to uh, rediscover a balance. It doesn't mean that uh, we create the old segregated communities with high walls of the past. That would be very inefficient. Uh, and so the state and the market have to also play a role in uh, getting the community of the future a much more inclusive uh, community, but more empowered, which is why I use the term inclusive local. Now, it seems sometimes like a contradiction in terms, but it really implies trades trade-offs, right? That you want to encourage more uh, local powers in determining how, for example, the local community produces or how it uh, it teaches in its schools uh, so that they can teach what is appropriate. At the same time, what you don't want to do is give them uh, immense powers in erecting barriers around the community, for example, to the entry of new people or to uh, people buying into the community. You don't want to 
create balkanized communities. And, and to some extent, that's exactly what the United States has done in trying to separate the federal from the state, right? The, the, the whole Commerce Clause, in a way, is an attempt to create a national market where you would have the flow of goods and services across states while giving states a fair amount of, of leeway in determining uh, what regulations are within the state so long as they don't interfere with the flow of goods from other states into that state. So I think something like that at the community level also needs to be, uh, uh, you know, we, we need to figure out how to bring about something like that where you have a lot of power but not the power to exclude. So on a similar vein, can you talk a bit about your idea of populism? Because I know you talk, you don't obviously encourage the most extreme form of, pop, of populism, um, but you do say that populism can play a valuable role in holding politicians accountable um, and generating transparency. Right. Um, so can right. you just say briefly uh, how you feel about that? Well, well, I think the um, populism is is very useful as uh, as a form of of democracy, which which expresses a fair amount of skepticism about the elite, and uh, I think it. If, if channeled in the right direction, it can it can renew both democracy and capitalism uh, by by essentially challenging closed doors, uh, challenging the kind of cronism that constantly emerges in markets uh, where where the markets try and enlist the state in uh, in creating barriers to competition. Uh, I think uh, broadly, people who don't have influence but who have the vote and who have the ability to protest uh, essentially come together and say, this is not working for us. please figure out a way that we get opportunity once again. And I think we're seeing that kind of, uh, of movement uh, once again. The, the problem, uh, of course, is when it uh, moves into directions that essentially uh, either create uh, domestic or international enemies, and I'm talking about populist nationalism there, or try and basically subvert the whole system by some idealistic view of, uh, you know, uh, utopian socialism, if you will, uh, on on how everything can be reconfigured to the benefit of all. And, and my sense is, is so long as these populist movements uh, start before the system is so corrupted that it's beyond remedy, uh, they can have very, very beneficial effects in straightening out the course of, uh, of the system and making it more work much more uh, uh, much better for for everyone i i argue that the populist movements in the late 18 uh, century in the late 19th century uh, followed by the progressive movement in the united states helped create a really competitive us economy even while countries like germany had a much more concentrated economy with with obvious consequences down the line <laughs> yeah obvious and very very bad. While we're on the subject of populism, some people like to draw the you know connection between all the different elections sweeping developed countries from Brexit to Trump to their governments in Hungary and Poland and now Italy. Some people lump in Bolsonaro now in Brazil. Do you see a common connection between the rise of these you know people people are calling populist anti-establishment, sometimes authoritarian governments? Is this the result of the third pillar of community just not being nearly as present in a lot of countries as it used to be? 
Well, it's not as much a community, I would say, as we've had serious change, partly as a result of technological change, but also technological change fostering a stronger globalization. And these serious changes need to be adapted to. My sense is to explain a, a worldwide phenomenon that we're seeing across so many countries, you have to argue that certainly these forces of technology have a affected many uh, sort of dominant communities of workers uh, in, in many countries, and they are now looking for, for answers. And uh, uh, that could explain why the old system has become disrupted. And add on to that the failure of the elite in the global financial crisis and the, um, and the vestiges of that, and you get the combination of a need to adapt, but also a kind of resentment against the old establishment, uh, which essentially is a characteristic of many of these populist movements. So we talk a lot about the developed countries, but you also briefly, you talk about China and India in your book. Um, And obviously you have a tremendous amount of experience in India. You know the topic probably better than anyone else in the world. Um, But would you mind saying something briefly about, you know, are these same problems we're seeing here? Can we expect to see them or are we already seeing them in places like India and China? Well, you're seeing different versions uh, of these problems because they're not as as developed. They have uh, they experience some of the forces of globalization uh, differently, uh, as also the effects of technology. Uh, even within uh, those two countries, there are big differences. Uh, there are big differences between India and China. India is uh, at this point uh, uh, quite a lot poorer and still has some way to go towards middle income. Uh, India, with its democracy uh, and its relatively weak state, has always found it harder to climb the ladder of development because it's been doing reasonably well over the last so many years, but uh, but it has had a, 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 a more difficult path. China, with its somewhat more authoritarian regime with the party in charge, I think has had a much easier route to middle income, um, not taking anything away from the extraordinary uh, leadership uh, that they've had over the last uh, 30, 35 years. Uh, of course, what China needs to do now is move from middle income to the frontier. And to my mind, this is where it needs to imitate more of uh, Western institutions, especially uh, moving away from uh, from one party uh, to a more democratic system. And, and my sense, as I argue in the book, is uh, the constraint of having a market economy under a dominant single party will eventually hold them back. And uh, already you can see some of the effects of that. And I think they will have to consider whether, in fact, if they want to become a, a economic superpower, they'll have to think about what kinds of political changes they have to make. India already has uh, some of the trappings of a liberal market democracy, with, uh, with certainly with democracy and with, uh, with reasonably vibrant markets. They, they still have some way to go. But what it needs to do first is get wealthier. And, uh, you know, it's harder to do it with the kind of uh, really strong civil society as well as democratic government it has. But nevertheless, I I think India is prepared for the next stage of growth uh, from middle income to rich. It first has to reach middle income, which will still take some time. Do you think there's any hope much longer, though, about China becoming a, you know, a quote unquote normal 
more Western-oriented or at least Democratic country? Because I, I know one of the reasons people lobbied for bringing it into the WTO was there's this idea that economic liberalization would lead to political liberalization. But it, I mean, it, it almost seems like they're moving in the exact wrong direction, becoming more. China is moving away from uh, from political liberalization, especially under Xi Jinping. Uh, I think it was moving steadily towards more liberalization earlier. So this is a change which may have to do with, uh, with personalities uh, rather than necessarily the system. Uh, however, uh, I don't think it is a given that, uh, you know, you, you get richer and immediately you become more democratic. I do think that the, um, the difficulties for a single party uh, to manage a really vibrant frontier economy, uh, the difficulties will increase. Uh, and the temptation for the party to continue intervening, uh, to support the stock market when it falls, to support the econ- economy through additional credit when it's slowing down, uh, these kinds of temptations will continue and new ones will come, such as intervening in, in large private firms uh, and, and trying to force your strategies and policies on them. And at the front frontier where, you know, knowledge is much more widely distributed, um, it becomes much harder for a centralized party to take all these decisions and make, uh, you know, not make a hash of them. And that's my sense uh, of why uh, increasingly um, business people uh, and party officials will find that the system doesn't work as well anymore. Of course, China is slowing significantly over the last uh, last few quarters for reasons other than this longer-term secular uh, challenge that I argue they will face. Uh, but nevertheless, there will be a rethinking when they find that uh, the system doesn't work as well at this stage of growth than it used to work in, in in the past stage of growth. Great. So uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I think we may go with two more questions here, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so first, uh, what are your thoughts on universal basic income? Um, obviously, that's something a lot of people are floating now as a way to kind of combat, you know, issues with the market, issues with the state, right. people on both sides of the spectrum um, support it. Um, what's, right. What are your thoughts? Uh, universal basic income, uh, certainly at a level which uh, makes it um, reasonable for a person not to work, I, I think first it requires many more resources than our systems are currently geared for. Uh, we would need to increase taxation significantly, but even leaving the political difficulty of doing that, I also think it's somewhat premature. Uh, we still are not at the stage where you know, there's no work for people. There is plenty of work and we shouldn't make it such that it's impossible to attract people into into work simply because you're paying them a lot to, to stay at home. Uh, that will, I think, uh, hinder innovation. There are lots of new innovations which uh, I think would require moderately skilled people. Take, for example, uh, med- medical care. Uh, I mean, it's really very hard for any of us to get quick advice on our health. I mean, suppose you have fever, uh, at this point, uh, uh, certainly in the system that I have, uh, I need to go to the emergency room to get any kind of opinion uh, in finite uh, time. Otherwise, I have to set up an appointment for a few weeks down the line. You know, we all need more medical care. Would it be, uh, wouldn't it make sense to train 
a bunch of people uh, to have the ability to um, sort of interview patients, uh, glean their symptoms, and then input it into an artificial intelligence system, which spits out some kind of diagnosis. And that diagnosis can go quickly through a doctor and then be communicated back to the patient. You know, it may say something like take two aspirins, or it may say, please come in, we think you have thus and such. Uh, the, the broader point I'm trying to make is there are lots of jobs that can emerge with new technologies. If we uh, uh, instead uh, adopt universal basic income, we're essentially preventing those jobs from happening. But equally important, we prevent people from having the dignity of working and having earnings which stem from that uh, dignified work. I, I think it's premature to go in that direction. Uh, let's, uh, you know, when we get to mass unemployment, uh, let's think about universal basic income at that point when we know there's no hope of generating jobs ever again. Uh, yeah, it's, it my, seems my like sense a, is we're still a long way from there. Yeah, it seems like an odd policy to be so popular when unemployment is at like 4% or something very low. Right. Um, all right, final question. So. There's a lot in this book about technology and a lot of worry everywhere about robots coming to take the jobs and automation causing all these issues. Bill Gates, of all people, has been one person to float the idea of a robot tax, where I guess the idea would be you would tax companies that, I don't know exactly how it would work, but I guess the idea being when automation costs jobs, we should you know collect some tax revenue off of that to maybe then go toward retraining or whatever. But the counterpoint seems to be if you tax automation, you'll get less productivity enhancing technology, which might also not be a good idea. So where do you come down on the idea of the robot tax? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I, I think that one has to be very careful uh, about standing in the way of technological progress. Uh, I mean, ultimately, if you think about it, isn't our dream to lie on the beach and uh, be served hand and foot by machines? Uh, we never have to do any work again. It's my dream. So, uh, a lot of the anxiety about machines is really about the distribution of income when the machines take over. And my sense is, uh, one, we're very far away from the machines taking over, again, to the point that uh, we have pretty much full employment today. Uh, second, uh, we need to be thinking far more about the quality of work we do while there's work, which means more about training people to take full advantage of technology rather than limiting the technology. And then on that fine day when, you know, we find that uh, machines can do all the work, uh, at that point, if one person owns all those machines, we can figure out how to tax them so that some of their income spreads to everybody else. But again, uh, you know, society will figure it out at that point. Let's not stand in the way of productivity in but let's try and figure out ways in fact, in which we all can benefit from it. I couldn't agree more. I hope I live to the day when a robot can bring me a, a pina colada on the beach. Until then, we are all out of time. Dr. Jean, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you to Dr. Rajan for coming on the show, and we hope you enjoyed it. If you have not already, please subscribe to Banter on the podcast app or wherever podcasts are found and rate and leave us a nice comment. It helps with the algorithm somehow. <laughs> I don't understand it, but it, apparently it helps, so please do it. <laughs>
and the market are both on the march. And speaking of March, we're still in the thick of March Madness. What do you think about last week in the basketball? You know, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I am currently number three in AEI's bracket pool. Oh, I thought you meant feeling good about UVA. I'm your, feeling good. about a selfish uh, bracket. No, I'm feeling good about that, too. For those of our listeners who do not know, Matt and I are avid UVA basketball fans. And UVA, last year, the first ever one seed to lose to a 16 seed in March Madness. And I thought it was going to happen again. We got off. You're down 14 points 10 minutes into the game against... What, uh, what school is it? Gardner-Webb Gardner running Bulldogs. Someone on Twitter pointed out Gardner-Webb sounds like the name of a like an old law from the 50s that everyone agrees is bad now. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's, it does. Yeah. And then thankfully, though, we came back and we smashed them in that game and then uh, came and won our second game last night against Oklahoma. How you feeling, Matt? Pretty good. Oklahoma put up 95 in game one, so I was pretty worried about them. And I, we held them to, what, like 50-something? I think uh, 51, maybe. Yeah. Less? D.A.K. looked great. Yeah. And... Uh, Kyle Guy did not, but he's working on it. He'll be... How's your bracket looking otherwise? Not good. No. I mean, it's <laughs> fine. The, the thing with this year is every Sweet 16 matchup is about what people thought it would be. Like, you got one, like, one, four, two, three, and I think three out of the four regions. The only the only exception is we're playing Oregon, the 12 seed. Yeah. Everywhere else, it's like one, four versus two, three, I think. So there's not a whole lot of variation. you got to differentiate yourself in the first round, and I did not do that. No, well, we, we, we almost had a nine seed in... Uh, the next round against Duke. You watched Duke. that game yesterday? Oh, UCF? Yeah. yeah. I was kind of insane. I mean, I was kind of happy Duke won, though. How? Because I, I don't know. It, I want to see Duke smash Virginia. But here's why. Because if UCF <laughs> won, Tech would have played UCF. And then if Tech somehow makes an Elite Eight or a Final Four before UVA does, I'll, I'll have to, you know, just disown Yeah, that would that, be bad. But UCF was pretty awesome to watch. They've got this guy who's seven foot, seven six. He's one of the ta- one of the ta- his name is Taco. <laughs> He's one of the tallest people in the world. And he can dunk the ball without jumping, <laughs> which he did at least once. Repeatedly. <laughs> Is he going to the NBA? I don't know. I don't know if he's athletic enough. I'm not, I don't know. 7'6", seven, seven, they can use you somewhere. You've got no excuse not to if you're that tall. No. So. I don't know, but I'm feeling good. I think we'll be, we should be at Oregon. The Pac-12 is weak. Yeah, we'll see. In any event, though, you guys will all know. There's a chance this time next week UVA is on its way to their first Final Fours in Several decades. Yeah. Or there's a chance that we've been humiliated and everybody tells us we were wrong and you all heard it here first. (laughs) So. See you next week.